I'm Tegan. I'm Megan. And this is The Office Hours, the podcast where two literature professors analyze the great American story. Hey, Megan. Hey, Tegan. How you doing? I'm thinking that we have reached a climax in the narrative of your experience of The Office. Absolutely. Is that correct? <laughs> I think... I mean, you were sending me texts. You were like, have you watched it yet? You know, and so uh, I definitely felt like this was an uh, um, an apex. Is that the right word? The, mm-hmm. it, was, it was definitely a high point. Yeah. Uh, in the watch. And I was like, oh, my God, how are we going to spend 90 minutes on this? Like, there's so much to say. Yes. As you said over text. This is a rich text. Yeah, it, it truly is. It truly is. It truly is. Is this one of your faves? Is this like, does this rank high for you? Or, or It does. I love it. I really, really love it. Um, do you want to say why or should we hold off on that? Uh, I mean, it's the Michael plot. For uh, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. For sure. This is going to be a similar case probably to last time where I want to talk a lot about the Michael story and then the kind of side romantic stories. Eh, I could take them or leave them. Yeah. 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 It's funny. Cause I was like, Oh man, I, I, I didn't, I'd forgotten, I guess that this is how this episode starts. Mm-hmm. You know, I, in my mind, the Michael plot looms very large and the, but, but there's a pretty significant opening to it that like plot wise uh, for the Jim and Pam arc, so um, probably have to address that. Yeah, but it's funny how it's dwarfed by mysterious, yes, uh, clothing. Yes, um, and I do feel like this is our episode to shine because uh, we've always been talking about gender stuff in the office. That's like one of our core uh, obsessions. But I also feel like you have an incredible attunement to clothing in the office like you're always you know zeroing in on people's outfits makeup stuff like that so i feel like you're gonna have lots to contribute we'll see i hope so well first things first um we should head over to accounting do Um, you have a revision or regret today i do have a revision and regret specifically a regret finally do you have one several (laughs) (laughs) well mine is actually a belated delayed regret um it should have been i should have articulated this last uh episode um so i I regret that i didn't do that and then i regret that um a couple episodes ago i said uh, basically that there are no where no good werewolf movies Mm, Uh, a a bold claim yeah and i uh i haven't re-listened to it how far I went in there because and if I hope I hopefully gave myself some room to say I do like the 1940s Universal Wolfman I like it okay and and Werewolf of London I like okay okay. and American Werewolf in London fine and The Howling I think is pretty good although every time I try to rewatch it it doesn't do much for me I have a deep soft spot for the Benicio Del Toro Anthony Hopkins Wolfman reboot which is objectively a bad film but I like but so anyway, I was trying to say basically, like, I think the genre is no good, even if there are some films that I like. And okay. then I got a text um, from longtime listener, um, Andy, and uh, he had asked me, what about Werewolf by Night, 
which is a it was like a television special on Disney Plus. And it's like, a, I guess, based on a Marvel Comics kind of it's like a Marvel superhero kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did watch that and I had forgotten that I really liked it. Um, and it's shot in black and white. It came out in 2002 or uh, t- 2022, I mean, last year. Um, and so anyway, I would like to include a werewolf by night as a legit good and worthy entry in the werewolf genre. However, I personally felt that it fell more on the superhero fantasy action side of things than a horror film it's not it's like it's got horror aesthetics but it's not precisely a horror thing Mm -hmm. i don't know i'm quibbling this is a thing that jen and i argue about all the time like is so is such and such horror and she hates that question um (laughs) and and andy might aptly respond that like the the question wasn't so much are where is such and such a good horror film but are there good werewolf stories and so there's that the other thing that I forgot to say and I feel really bad about is Ginger Snaps is an excellent werewolf story. And it is, I don't think I talked about it, but it is about a woman or a young woman who gets bit by a werewolf. She's like in high school and she transforms. And it's like almost like a kind of, I don't know, picture like Mean Girls, but with a werewolf or something. And it uses the werewolf thing to talk a lot about like, essentially like women's sexuality women's you know uh, getting their period like this kind of bodily changes that women face um hmm. and they made two sequels to it and i re- i legitimately love the sequels and one of them is set like in colonial america i think um and uh anyway so i genuinely would recommend the ginger snaps trilogy if anybody's interested in uh, werewolf stories and then lastly there was Wait, in the trilogy that's a movie yeah those are there's three movies i forget what the okay. sequel is called but ginger snaps i i genuinely i actually think you might even like ginger snaps but I at don't first know. i wrote down the title as you were speaking because at first i the way you were describing it at first i thought it was going to be a short story ah. and then it became a movie and i was like uh i don't know Oh, but... right. no i don't read nerd only nerds read i just watch things that's true no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to regret that next time. Uh, and then lastly, um, there was a film two years ago, 2021, called Werewolves Within, which was like a mystery comedy horror movie. And I loved it. Um, I don't know if it's like great, but it's pretty good. And it has, you know, fun twists and turns. And I guess it's based on a video game that I never played. Um, but that would also be so I regret that I said that there are no good werewolf stories and I've now offered a few in case listeners give a shit Um, but also apologies and thanks Andy for reminding me I have a recommendation for you Tegan I think you should write fanfic about that takes Dwight um, (laughs) killing (laughs) killing his neighbor's dog because he thinks it's a werewolf that's brilliant Okay. Side story for you to write. I do think you know we went down the rabbit hole of doing strange offshoots in the podcast. There was one episode where I read fanfic. There's one where we got deep into pen reviews. You know, (laughs) I don't know. I I sometimes think we could have office hours. You know, uh, after hours, after office hours, (laughs) and uh, we we can always do an annex, an annex episode anytime we really need some extra space for this. Yeah. 
Okay. What about you? So I have several revisions and regrets. I also got called out over text by my sister. This was about not our most recent episode, but it was a couple of episodes ago when you asked me if I have songs with people. Who is it in the office even that we were talking about this? Who has their song? Oh, Pam and Roy bring this up and they have the Jewel song. Jewel, yeah. Jewel song. Okay, yeah. So my sister was very disappointed that I didn't mention her. First of all, I mentioned sharing the I Will Walk 500 Miles song with my uncle. My sister was like, I was also in that minivan. And I am offended by being um, uh, overlooked or worse forgotten something. But anyway, I did have a little bit of pushback on that because I still feel like despite all the people in my car or who were in that car, it really became my uncle's song. So I'm not fully giving her that one, but we do have (laughs) songs like the Post Malone Jackie Chan song. Do you know that? I don't. It is real fun. Really, really fun. But it got me thinking about what makes what is it that creates a song? And this was another case where it was just, we happened to, I don't even remember where we were, but be listening to it together and really enjoyed it. And um, also with my husband and hers. So we kind of have this as like a group of four song. And when we go visit them, we love to hear, love to listen to the song and then regret if we don't. So I highly recommend checking out Jackie Chan by Post Malone. It's just, it's a song that gets you, gets you moving. I just put it in my Spotify, so I'm ready. Okay, perfect. That's number one of several. Second, I I was skeptical that Jamaica had black sand beaches. Apparently Jamaica does have some black sand beaches, although there is a little bit of um, dispute, debate online of some people saying I am Jamaican and we do not have black sand beaches. And then other people being like, Bro, yeah, there are black sand beaches, but then they come back and say, well, really, they're brown. They're not that black sand. I don't know. I haven't seen it, but I overgeneralized. <laughs> black sand beaches are apparently not limited to the Pacific. Um, so now and never take my geographical claims seriously about the logical fallacy thing. So wow. I was really struggling when. Michael says, um, there, you know, only early, only good friends show up early for a party, therefore show up early, become a good friend. And I was trying to grasp, like, what's the, what's the lot? I was thinking this feels like a logical fallacy, but what one is it? And I was kind of playing with the post hoc ergo propter hoc, which is like the after therefore because of, but I was like, that's kind of weird because it's not really a thing of sequence. One of those doesn't exactly happen after the other. So I found another one. It's another form of false cause. Um, But I don't know that I even knew this one before, but cum hoc ergo propter hoc, which is the assumption that because two things happen simultaneously, you're assuming that one happened because of the other. Mm-hmm. So like happening at the same time, therefore, because of. So I think it's that Michael is seeing the person who shows up early is also the good friend. Therefore, the showing up early must cause being a close friend. I see. Okay. So he sees those things are like bundled together. So he thinks that one is the cause of the other when it's not. 
but it's not the case. I see. I see. This is false cause. <laughs> I am. I was so impressed by that moment in the podcast, or I was like, oh yes, of course I know Latin logical. Of my um, grasping, grasping for grasping and unable to find it, but I I think that that's a better a better fit. I you were just so smart, and I'm just along for the ride. I like it. I think I, I said this last time and I'll say it again. I think you're really over generous in your compliments. Um, so, you know, reel it back. Or <laughs> <laughs> people it's are going to be like, dude, brilliant. that was not a smart comment. <laughs> um, the other thing, I don't know if you ever experienced this, but when I'm listening back, sometimes I'm like, I want to go back and edit my sentences <laughs> like if I were writing them. So I said at some point, intending to look at it this way, those as two separate words, in and tending. But I realized when I say that, it sounds like one word, intending, and it's misleading. <laughs> so I'm like, if this was a really well-produced and edited podcast, those are the kinds of those are the kinds of specific edits that I would go back and make. I did one of those, I think last time, and I just can't remember the word, whether it was last time or maybe the time before, but I mm -hmm. thought I... I stumbled over the word like justice or or just us or I don't mm. know there was a word there was some word and I was anyway I was like ooh that's embarrassing um like it, like sometimes you start to say a word you're yes. you're trying to say one word but a different word's coming out of your mouth and then you veer yes. left and you get there and yes. you cover it up and I did that and I was like oh I should revise and regret it and then forgot to mention it but yeah. uh yeah I <laughs> It's making me hard. More, this listening, it is hard. This listening back to myself speaking is making me think, what am I saying? Just in regular life when I'm not able to go back and catch it, you know? <laughs> um, but that's uh that's about all. I guess now I do have one other thing. Sorry, there's five, five items today. Um I described scotch as being not whiskey as like opposed to whiskey and I think I brought shame on some people in my family who would really criticize me for misunderstanding that scotch is a kind of whiskey from Scotland bourbon is another type of whiskey and it's the American type and um I don't really have a lot of other detail to get into that but just that I want to acknowledge my error acknowledged and received thank you okay finally I've gotten through my through my regrets Oh, wait, that's the end? That's the end. Oh, okay, quick question. Have you watched the show The Bear? No, but I've heard about this. I Isn't think... it set in a restaurant or something? Yeah, in Chicago. Um, it's very Chicago-focused, uh, so I feel like you'd I'll like it. But anyway, um, a friend of mine was like, really wanted me to watch it so that we could talk about it, so I did. I was really resistant to watching it because everybody kept telling me to watch it. But the whole point of this is just that everybody calls each other chef, and then sometimes they'll somebody will say something and they'll say herd like herd chef or whatever so when you were saying you know when i was acknowledging your regret i wanted to be like herd um but then i <laughs> was like oh that won't make any sense and so now i've wasted 30 seconds explaining stupid joke that anyway but uh yeah when we do uh -oh. when we run out of office episodes we can do the bear and then call each other chef all the time which will be it's what jen and i have been doing <laughs> yeah that sounds good uh, all right, well, let's stroll on over to Pam's corner, shall we? Okay. 
because we have something in the inbox. All right. Do you want to read it into the record for us? Yeah, sure. Wait, did you paste it in for me? I'm doing it right now. <laughs> right, perfect. <laughs> see if I can paste all of it in. Uh, yes. Okay. Okay. All right. And Tegan, who does this message come from? Uh, this is from Teal. This is okay. This is from a listener. Teal. Excellent. Who's appeared on the pod before. Yes. All right. I do listen regularly. Three exclamation points. I think this is probably in response to our question. Does anyone still listen? We've gotten feedback. I've We've heard specifically from like four individual people saying, yes, I listen. Okay. So I do listen regularly. I don't watch the show, but I literally keep track of the weeks. Ooh, since Megan doesn't post on Instagram. <laughs> heard. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll work on that. Um, so I keep track of the weeks and woke up this morning and went, I think it's an office hours week and listened as I got ready. I also love the office supply segment. So either you only have one listener, me, who likes to listen so much to you that they don't even like the office show, but like you, Aww. or no one is taking the time to write in because everyone is burnt out and tired from capitalism and life like me. LMAO. Relatable, relatable teal. For your supply shelf segment, I remember Megan having post-it notes galore all over her desk and walls. Yes, teal was a student of mine. Um, that was true. Do you have opinions on post-it notes? Name brand, the ones that flip every other side, being sticky so that you can put them in a fancy holder, colors. I think also... As someone who doesn't watch the show, I really like that you all go off on tangents and laugh together, and it makes me laugh with you. Also, feel free to use my pronouns, they, them, and share my story now if you'd like. P.S. This is the first email I've sent with my pronouns in my signature. Hey. Very sweet. Thank you, Teal. Tegan, do you want to share what that reference is to share my story? Sure, absolutely. So uh, a couple of, I'm trying to, you know, a little, not too long ago, you mm -hmm. had texted me uh, a message from Teal. And this was right after um, I came out as trans on the podcast. And um, uh, amusingly, in that text, Teal also says, uh, I still listen to your podcast regularly. <laughs> so I guess we're constantly wondering uh, if, um, <laughs> if anybody listens. But um, in that message, they wrote, um, I wanted you to know that you definitely laid the groundwork for deconstructing gender in undergrad for me, but also, for whatever reason, Tegan coming out on the pod last week finally gave me the courage, permission, uh, sorry, permission slash courage to come out to myself as non-binary. Um, and that just, I when I got that, like, I cried. I was just so overwhelmed. Um and so excited for you, Teal. So I just wanted to say congratulations. And I, I don't know, I for the one thing that really was so heartwarming to me was hearing about how important, what an influence you were, Megan, on, you know, Teal's relationship to thinking about gender and things like that. That, that just was really heartwarming um, to me. But also, like, personally, I, one of the big struggles for me in coming out as trans has been um, 
coming out to myself. Like, so I love that phrasing that they have. Um, you would think that that wouldn't be the hard part. Like the hard part is like coming out to others or whatever, but at least for me, like coming out to myself, uh, like even now, like I'm out, you know, whatever. And I, and I still have moments where I'm like, yeah, like I, I, I didn't make this up. I'm not an imposter. I didn't, you know, this isn't all in my head. Like this is, this is real. Um, and I don't know why I think it's, it's difficult sometimes for us in a world where, you know, uh, it's constantly being erased. We're not seeing other people who also struggle with these things or, you know, tell their stories. Like one really fun thing about coming out has been other people telling me about their relationships to gender or their bodies. And it's just like reinforced for me, like, oh, wow. Yeah, no, I have a really different experience <laughs> or whatever, or, oh, that really resonates with me. My experience is really similar. And, um, yeah, anyway, so, uh, I, I'm just so excited for you, Teal, and, um, happy to be, you know, uh, in, in community with you. Oh, that's such a cheesy way of saying it, but whatever, uh, just really excited. And, um, and thanks so much for, for having the, you know, the courage to share it with us. Yeah. And look at you, Tegan, inspiration influencer. Oh yeah. That's, I don't that's mean that deep. in a negative way. I do. I'm sorry. <laughs> that really, <laughs> but I mean that, I mean that in a totally positive, totally positive way, because I think it is just inspiring and warm and wonderful. Um, we also have some more specific questions to address here. And that is about post-it notes. Oh yes. That's the real important thing. They were saying, we got to talk about post-its, not <laughs> <laughs> they were both they can both be important both equally important i know <laughs> all right <laughs> are you um, gonna dive into post-its now is this happening oh yeah we're going okay. i um okay. i have very strong feelings about post-its they are a big part of my life and identity um the questions specifically, do, so do you have opinions? Yes, I'm absolutely for them. I think that they are the best thing for brainstorming and moving your ideas around. I have this thing behind me on my wall where when I'm writing, I use post-it notes to try to put together my ideas and move them around and see the connections among them. But my sister was actually here recently and did a Zoom call and it was with her boss and the boss was like, where are you? What's that behind you? And she's like, oh, I'm in my sister's house. She's a professor, yada, yada, yada. And the guy goes, as a professor, does she solve murders? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, you know, I guess it's like one of those murder boards where you like have- That is what it know, looks like. The notes and then you've got the little lines that go between them. But I think post-its are fabulous. Name brand, question mark. Um, from Teal, the name brand is quite strong. I also have found that Staples produces a really good product. And I think I've used the Target ones. Occasionally you get a brand, and I'm not sure which one this is, but where the um, stickiness is so intense that when you pull, not that it then sticks to the wall well, but it's been so intense in the little packet that when you pull it off, it bends so much that it kind of maintains the bend. So that's something you just, you do have to watch out for in the world of post-its. Do I like the ones that flip where the stickiness is on every other side? So you can put it in a fancy holder. No, absolutely not. 
then it doesn't function as a pad where you can write on it and always have it be facing the correct way. So I'm opposed to that very strongly. Colors, I like to have a range. Tegan, <laughs> do you have feelings about post-it notes? Um, I've always wanted to like them more than I do. I found them to, I just haven't found them to, as workable for me. And I used to like kind of try to use them and to mark pages and books and stuff like that. Like I have students that have like a million sticky notes and color coded and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just never worked for me. I think for a couple of reasons, number one, like I am colorblind. And so I'm not like tracing the colors is difficult. And then secondly, I, they always would come off. Like I never really invested in the good stuff. I don't think and explored it. So, um, but I did have a question for you. Well, first, by the way, if anybody heard a strange small growl uh, while Megan was talking, that's because Toby wanted to get up on the couch. Um, I'll say so, who Toby is. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, Toby is my dog. <laughs> not Toby from the office. Not Toby from the office. Not and and I didn't name my dog after Toby from the office. Uh, um, but uh, not that I'm sad that they have the same name because, you know, I love Toby and Toby in this episode is great. Yeah, but um, anyway, so Toby occasionally makes little growling noises. So it might have been that it was not my hungry stomach. And then secondly, uh, can you briefly explain the system of your post-its? Because behind they're always behind you. And I'm always like, how often do you change them? Do you are you erasing and redrawing the lines? Like, like, sometimes they seem to stay for a while. Like, is it an inspiration board? What is what is it doing? Great question. So usually it's tied to a particular project or essay that I'm working on. And it's what I'm trying to figure out. Or the ones that Teal saw in my office were more when I'm planning classes. And so if I'm doing class plans, I'll lay out, I have the numbered weeks, and then I'll put the different readings that we have. And so one color will be for the readings, one color will be for assignments. And then that way I can move them around and think about different sequences for it. And it makes that really easy. What I have when I'm writing currently, I'm glad that at least one person likes supply shelf because this is going into a deeper dive than most people want. Feel free to skip ahead five minutes or so. Um, what I currently have, I've got the color coding. It was something I was writing about a novel. So that was kind of my primary source. So I had one color post-it for the quotes I was thinking about using with the novel. Then I had different colors for different categories of like theory and the literary criticism that was about the book itself. And then I used chalk for kind of the big ideas. So I sort of mapped out and figured out what were the big concepts I was working with and then moved the quotes all around. And so those things have moved, but this I've finished at least for the time being. And so it's stayed for a little while. And I need to erase it and begin again. You are so impressive to me. And I feel like you work way harder than I do on everything. Just like seeing your process, I'm just like, damn, you're so, it's so meticulous. And anyway, it's very impressive. It um, might be a sign of weakness that I have to work that hard to get there. <laughs> but I try hard. Um, all right. Well, we will have to come back to the supply shelf uh, next time because. Teal has Teal has demanded it. Has demanded it. Yep, the listeners are demanding. Yep. All right. Let's get into the episode. Let's do it. 
So this is season three, episode 18. 19. Okay, the script is wrong. The script is always wrong. You have to know that. Okay, sorry. All right. Season three, episode 19, (laughs) The Negotiation. Um, And here is the brief summary. An enraged Roy wants revenge. Daryl asks Michael for a raise. Angela inquires about Dwight's office heroism. Um, just a quick comment on this. We this is a, a, a three three sentence or three phrase uh, uh, summary, and I think it's pretty good. Even though I don't know that the Angela plot deserves its own <laughs> sentence, but I like the I like the verbs wants, asks, inquires. Um, in yeah. any case, uh, uh, and they they must have used the thesaurus. They were like, "Oh, Daryl asks for a raise. We can't have Angela asking about twice." <laughs> so we got to find a synonym in any case you're right it fires fires feels like a thesaurus word (laughs) (laughs) so let's start with the cold open because it's uh memorable i i wouldn't say it's um particularly funny but it is certainly dramatic uh roy is pacing angrily outside the office um uh, and he storms in. Uh, meanwhile, Karen and Jim are having a kind of blase, I don't know, conversation about uh, going out. Um, Jim doesn't want to go out. Karen wants him to go out uh, to see a movie. He just wants to watch a Phillies game. Um, Roy storms in uh, and then calls him Halpert, by the way, and mm-hmm. uh, is going to hit him. And uh, Dwight jumps in and hits him with the pepper spray, uh, causing nearly everybody to <laughs> wince and cry <laughs> in pain. Um, so yeah, uh, my or I'll just say this off the bat, the, my initial thought was it seems especially strange that the camera crew is filming Roy and not warning Jim. And it made me wonder about journalistic ethics, you know, and the role of the documentarian. People often, you know, kind of talk about this with like war photographers or, you know, other kinds of moments of crisis. Like, is there a responsibility of the person documenting to intervene? And yeah. to what extent are they fetishizing or or exploiting the situation? And so I thought about that here, but I also thought maybe that whether or not they are complicit pam sure is uh because she heard roy say i'm gonna kill him right or maybe not i don't know she walked away but it seems shocking that no one has said anything to jim but especially pam and the close-up on her face looking guilty tells me everything um as does her apology later so i don't know i felt that pam uh did jim dirty here what what was your take well, you had a much deeper reading of this than I did thinking about the ethics of the documentarian. That is great. What I kept thinking was, how terrible did Jim's hair look? <laughs> it did look, I was like, that's classic, Jim. I've been meaning to bring this up for the last few episodes. It is an issue in the season. His hair looks so bad and so fake and it like has always bothered me. And so one time years ago, I searched, like, what is the deal with Jim's hair in season three? And it turns out this is when he was in that football movie, Leatherheads. So I think I I think he had to buzz his hair or something like that. 
So this is actually a wig and it just feels like a bad one. Wow. I mean, it definitely has the kind of mop top messiness of the first season, but, but yeah, when it looked better before. I think once you notice this, I think you're not going to be able to unsee it. Yeah, can't wait like pink lining and Michael's jacket. Like once you know it's there, you can't stop seeing it. Um, yeah, so this is really bad. The other thing I noticed, I'm really, really going for the uh, small and insignificant, but. That's White. <laughs> I tried to get it in earlier when you said the thing about bending. Uh, and I can't remember. Was it about the post-its bending them and something? Oh. Anyway. But. <laughs> you got your, that's what she said. Um, <laughs> Dwight. So as Roy is coming in, Dwight is looking at some papers and he is holding and using a red pen He's kind of looking at the papers, though. He's got them, like, lifted up. And I just thought, hmm, it looks like Dwight has some kind of self-editing revision process in place. And I I really appreciate that. Hmm. I also really thought Dwight's response was quite strong. So after he does the pepper spray, it goes to an interview with him. And he says, every day for eight years, I've brought pepper spray into this office to protect myself and my fellow employees. And every day for eight years, people had laughed at me. Well, who's laughing now? And I don't know. I just liked to see, I liked to see this payoff for Dwight. If, if you don't give him a Dundee at the end of this episode, like I'm going to feel I'm going to have feelings about it. I I think that it's like, it's hard, hard to not accept the heroism of Dwight in this episode. (laughs) And, uh, but I also, go ahead. It was just, I just wanted to underline, accept the heroism of Dwight. (laughs) And, uh, but anyway, it's, it's so funny to me that he's bringing in pepper spray and, you know, nunchucks and throwing stars and, you know, expecting some sort of um, conflict in the office and uh i don't know it makes me think about kind of um a certain conservative argument it's like i have to stockpile weapons you know and this this is uh an uncomfortable thing right because it like kind of confirms his theory of like a good guy with a gun is all we need oh yeah um but at the same time it does amusingly show you know like the consequences of using the pepper sprayer like everybody gets injured um Yeah. yeah and uh there might've been other ways of diffusing this conflict, but nonetheless, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it really made me laugh. Um, he also, it seems like it is maybe significant that he doesn't have a gun. Not yeah. all the things can injure, but none of them are going to kill. That's true. And necessarily. I mean, it's possible to kill with them, but I guess the throwing stars are maybe most likely like if you end up cutting somebody's throat when you throw it or something, yeah. but for the most part, these are not going to inflict deadly wounds but they are going to stop the situation yeah i think you're right that's true they're not they're not he's not um he didn't shoot roy it's not, <laughs> not shoot roy yeah he did not um, shoot him. the show could have gotten really dark um <laughs> and i get arguably by in the final scene where he's like pepper sprays andy and then has all his weapons taken away it's kind of an answer to that like overzealous his desire to get into yeah. a fight of some sort. Um, he is overzealous. That's a good word for him. <laughs> it 
But wait, here's a question. Does he, I can't remember the sequence of when Toby takes away his weapons. Is it before or after he pepper sprays Andy? Is he allowed to keep the pepper spray? I don't know. If, I think it's after. He gets his weapons taken away after. After, okay. I think. Okay. All right. Well, here, I want to come back to your point that I must accept Dwight's heroism. Yes, yes. And I, want, I want to counter that a little bit and point out that Dwight refuses to accept his own heroism. Hmm. So he says, no, don't call me a hero. Those are the real heroes. And he's talking about, wait, where's, where's that quote? What's that quote? I'm missing. I need the context for this. Um, talking about a... <laughs> here Superman we go and batman right yeah yes no don't call me a hero do you know who the real heroes are those guys who wake up every morning and go into their normal jobs and get a distress call from the commissioner and take off their glasses and change into capes and fly around fighting crime those are the real heroes so what do you say is, uh, and is, is the final line not uh something like i'm not a hero I'm a mere defender of the office. You know who's a real hero? Hero from Heroes. That's a hero. Oh, the very end of the episode. Yes. Also Bono. <laughs> yes, also Bono. I love that. <laughs> um, I think that... Uh, um, well, I think if you were to ask Batman, Batman would say, I'm not a hero. You know. Oh, so, so is that just the real, the hero move is to like deflect onto someone who is yeah. a great hero still? Right. Whether, whether right. it's Batman or Bono. Precisely. So I think, you know, all you've given is textual evidence to support the claim that he is a hero by his wow. dismissal of the of the a mantle. Uh, you, of um, you, know what? you know how I love textual evidence. I, think I know you, know. you do. <laughs> this is such. I was remembering how this is a real thread for Dwight, though. He's a big believer in the superhero. Because in Diversity Day, do you remember that when Mr. Brown comes in, his slogan, he has an acronym of HERO, H-E-R-O, and Dwight, he's Mr. <laughs> Mr. Brown is asking the group in the office what they think a hero is, and Dwight says, a hero is part human and part supernatural, a hero is born out of childhood trauma or out of a disaster that must be avenged, and Mr. Brown says, okay, you're thinking of a superhero. And Dwight says, we all have a hero in our heart. Interesting. Oh, so is Dwight that, does this suggest that Dwight is part human, part supernatural, ultimately, mm -hmm. and that he is born out of a childhood trauma? I mean, he was ready to stake a vampire an episode or two ago. You know, uh, he shot a werewolf, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. He's got connections to the, what would you call that world? Like he's got connections to the something. The supernatural. Super, I the supernatural. I think he's, I think he's got connections to the supernatural. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do think, okay. So I was trying to play our game of like, how does this cold open set up the rest of the episode? And even though it doesn't explicitly bring up gender, it feels profoundly gendered, mm -hmm. that, you know, like Dwight has, you know, protected and served as a protector of um, the office and another man who then like owes him some 
credit or recognition or something like that. Angela's plot is basically like getting other people to retell the story. And she's like turned on by it, um, which I found to be funny. And, you know, horny Angela is like an amusing concept, um, if not also a slightly disturbing one. Because like what's getting her off is like his machismo, his heroism, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. And so the reason I thought that was important then is like it is in contrast to this kind of debate about Michael's masculinity and like a man is somebody who d wears men's clothes and earns a healthy <laughs> paycheck and uh, and uses men's weapons. Yeah. And I do think there is an ideal of masculinity, which is that like at any given moment, you should be able to fight or you mm -hmm. know defend your honor or family or something like that um yeah. and uh so anyway that, that that was the connection i made to the rest of the episode was kind of like setting up the gen reaffirming the gender binary so that we can then see michael's arguably his queerness um yeah and maybe his transness who can say uh <laughs> i bet you're gonna say <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah that's Oh, that's really good. Um, one thing about, so as Angela then asks for the story to be recounted, she is just so good at showing her interest and how heated up she gets listening to it. And particularly there's this move she makes the way that she holds her necklace and she kind of fiddles with her necklace and then will sort of put her hand by her neck. And I just thought the acting was really yeah. compelling because you think like, what are those little physical tells when they're not super explicit and she did a very a very good job of that but yeah I think you're you're totally right it's Dwight fulfilling this ultimate masculine role yeah Karen says like oh Roy's like a big dude you know really underscoring the yeah. size yeah. thing um how do you think how do you think Jim stacks up here in this hierarchy of manhood then that we've got in the episode it's a great question um and he is dwight is coming up he kind of um you know like pauses and he he looks over at pam and he looks at roy and then he pushes karen out of the way so he at least gets you know gets her out of the line of fire or line of punching i guess um but i don't know any thoughts on him well, I, I like this idea of like, let's kind of wrap up this everything else except the Michael Daryl plot, because like, so I thought my thoughts on Jim are somewhat scattered, but like, I don't know, I didn't get much on masculinity. Um, and but I thought it was interesting, like he feels indebted to Dwight, there's an earnestness and it was a really fun idea that like he doesn't he wants to repay him but Dwight doesn't trust him mm -hmm. so he feels kind of guilty about that so I do think there's some kind of like question of like male camaraderie or like male mm -hmm. I don't know what is the bond um it was really funny to me when Dwight brings up Han Solo <laughs> as a model <laughs> for his heroism and and uh I don't know um and then <laughs> Jim gets him the the uh certificate that's for kids um uh so even in a way I was I thought it was just like he's trying to give him something but even in that can't quite avoid not like 
um, infantilizing or humiliating Dwight a little bit. Um, yeah. Reminded me of Daryl, like kind of sabotaging his own desires by giving Michael um, phrases that are not real, you know? Yes. Uh, <laughs> quote, black man phrases. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I guess the, the one thing I'll say is, um, I don't know. Well, I get, I don't know. I don't know what to make of Jim in this episode, but like I felt his response to Pam was actually warranted when he's like, you know, um, we'll see. You guys have a really strong connection. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about it. Like, I actually thought that was like appropriate. You know, it's like she didn't warn him. She didn't tell him, which is kind of fucked up. And, um, you know, and he, she, he thought that he was maybe going to reconnect with her. And then she went back with Roy and yeah, I don't know. So I, I thought I was like, okay, maybe he's going to finally like get it that, that Karen is amazing. Um, but then Karen says that Jim probably, she doesn't know whether he preferred Dwight's <laughs> aggre or I'm sorry, Roy's aggression or nights and nights talking about feelings. Um, yes. So I thought maybe that's the in on Jim's like masculinity. He'd prefer to watch the game and he'd prefer not to talk about feelings. He's just a bro or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Karen says, when I heard Jim and Pam had kissed, my reaction was to have lots of long talks with Jim about our feelings. Roy just attacked him. I'm not sure which one Jim hated more. <laughs> I guess one of the interesting things too about Jim is the question of what happens when a man saves another man so so Dwight is definitely being a hero he's kind of like I don't know a navy seal or something where he like very skillfully springs into action and um saves somebody else but he's not saving a woman he's not saving a damsel in distress he's saving another man who is unprepared and then unable to fight for himself in some way mm -hmm. so I, I wonder if there's a even in Jim's need to thank him, like I think anyone would want to thank him. I think a woman would want to thank him and would be grateful for it. But I wonder if there's a different kind of dynamic that enters when he, it's a sort of destabilizing thing when he has saved a man who has failed to save himself. And I say failed with like, how are you expecting that? <laughs> I would certainly fail to save myself in that in that circumstance but Dwight it's like Dwight has also out Dwight not only outmans Michael in this he's and Roy in some ways I guess but he's also outmanning Jim by being the right. one who stops it yeah I I think that's right I think that that is one explanation for why Jim feels so to use your word destabilized that Dwight won't accept his thanks or his gratitude you know yeah. um which brings us back to how often this show is about the gift economy I remember maybe last season we talked a bunch about that, but it's kind of interesting, like how that reciprocity and, and returning the gift is something that keeps coming yes. up. But Dwight says, um, when Han Solo returns to the Death Star in the Millennium Falcon and shoots down the TIE fighters and saves the rebel cause, do you think he does so for a free beer? Now, what's interesting about that is that when Han Solo does. I'm sorry. Oh, of course, you know this. <laughs> I love um, it. Thank you for bringing your expertise. Look, I have to have something. You bring, you know, Latin logical fallacies. And I bring, <laughs> I bring them with the most. I bring them basically with Michael's and Wikipedia knowledge. <laughs> but uh, uh, 
yeah, I thought that was an interesting reference to Wikipedia because I was like, I feel like our our world's relationship to Wikipedia now has really changed. I remember when it was like, oh, it's so unreliable, don't trust it, and yeah. now people are like, yeah, it's a good first resource. Good. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I was like, wow, things have really changed since two thousand and one or whatever. We've been going about the the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> Um, I hear the disdain in your voice and I just want to remind you that you do a podcast about the office. <laughs> like anyway, uh, Han Solo. Okay. So first it's interesting that Dwight imagines himself as Han Solo, who is the most butch doodly mask character in the original star Wars, uh, a new hope, which is what he's referencing. However, it is Luke Skywalker who famously destroys the death star, but mm -hmm. It is Han Solo comes in at this surprising moment, like Luke Skywalker looks like he's about to be destroyed by Darth Vader and Han Solo like gets the the bad guys away and then is like, you're all clear, kid, like, you know, finish the job or whatever. And then Luke Skywalker is the one who takes the shot, which is very hard to take or whatever, and saves the day. They both get medals at the end. Um, and uh so what's interesting about that is like in theory, what he's doing is positioning Jim as Luke Skywalker. But Luke Skywalker in the first Star Wars movie is kind of callow and whiny and um mm. not uh he's not yet a hero. Like he's on the hero's journey in a way, you know, he's in huh. um so so anyway, it's kind of an interesting par not paradox or contradiction that on the one hand, he is giving Jim a position of heroism but on the other hand that position is still lesser on the totem pole of masculinity um and uh yeah that's all i have to say about that also oh he says he saves the rebel cause which i think is a misreading i think that Ooh. i don't know that i don't know that anybody would well on the other hand people yeah i don't know i guess it's how much of a han solo stan are you and i don't love han solo i must confess i think he's a bit of a douche um but in any case uh uh where were we <laughs> oh i have a point it, okay. uh, we learned that jim won't press charges against roy or the company and i kept yeah. being like why like it's such an opera first i was like on what grounds could he press charges against the company but i was like there is a security guy right and if that guy let him through but like why wouldn't you take the advantage to press charges against company i don't know whatever but i thought pressing charges against roy was interesting like if by not doing that he is not admitting that he was assaulted, that he was potentially violated, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. Why not press charges? I don't know, anyway. Yeah. I feel like it would be hard. I mean, I don't I don't feel like I would see the case that he would have really against the company, ex except right. for like opportunism um, of to try to get into something. But you're right. I mean, Roy here was real bad i can't believe they let roy come back in for his paycheck it seems like they could have put that in the mail also what was with the security guy who walked him up who wasn't hank right i love hank um so i always like to see like to see him show up but they got they're kind of a younger guy when's time. the last time we saw hank any do you remember been a little while yeah i don't remember well yeah we'll, we'll do it's some been a while. um I have one other one other note on the Roy and Pam situation, and then I think I'm ready to go full force into Michael and Daryl and Jan. So when Roy and Pam go out for coffee, yeah, 
Roy says, I'm so sorry, Pammy. I really wasn't going to, I really wasn't going to do anything, but then I, I kept thinking about you two together and I just thought you guys were really good friends or maybe he was gay or something. And then he kind of pauses and looks over the camera and says, not that that's wrong. I thought it was funny to see and just kind of interesting those moments when the presence of the camera does enter and the sort of reminding us the way that the camera does something to conversations and him there catching himself in something that he would just say, I thought maybe it was gay or something, which makes him comfortable with him being like the gay best friend. Um, But being perceived by the camera makes him need to make that qualification. But the other thing and the bigger thing I think I wanted to point out is that he calls her Pammy. Mm. And she said in the last episode when she was trying to be more courageous and more honest and don't call me Pammy. Oh, shit. (gasps) So I thought this was just a little point back to that and that being something that she actually does not like to be called. And it feels like she was conceding too much and going out for this coffee with him which was very unearned for Roy. That um, is brilliant, Megan. Oh my don't god. Call her wow. I I'm so impressed. I didn't I didn't make that connection and now it totally reframes that moment because I thought what was funny about it was like she was calling herself that and then correcting herself, but now we know he's the one that calls her that. Yeah. And she's yeah. changing the way. Oh, wow. Yeah, she's Good point. Away from that. Um, I just have a few little details. Uh, Pam looks at the camera and then agrees to meet with Roy because he's like, can I take you out for coffee or something, you know? And mm-hmm. I kept thinking that was an interesting thing. I, and I wondered whether she was looking at the camera and being like, I don't want them to know that I'm going to do this or I'm mm-hmm. saying yes. Or am I saying yes because they're looking, you know, I, I wasn't sure her relationship to the camera in that moment. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. yeah. And when he says, I don't get you, Pam. And she says, I know. I thought that was good writing. Um, yeah. Also, that is a potential reference to Star Wars. Um, Are you serious? Yes. In... <laughs> In uh, again, the disdain in your voice is incredible. no. That was excitement. That was excitement in my voice. That's in the Empire Strikes Back, Han Solo says to Princess Leia right before he's frozen in carbonite by Darth Vader and the bounty hunter Boba Fett. Uh, <laughs> this just sounds so bad. <laughs> but this is why I need you. Look, I would never get here. <laughs> this wealth of knowledge. Uh, Princess Leia says, I love you. And Han Solo responds, I know. And it's, it's an iconic moment. Um, and one that my, my you know, my partner, Jen, is like, hates that. Mo- like, I, I, she has not really watched all of Star Wars, but I remember she saw that scene and was like, fuck this guy. He should say I love you back. And I was like, <laughs> no, he's like a roguish, like whatever. And it's important because whatever and she was like no that's bullshit anyway but so um i wondered if that was a reference because he's like i don't get you and she's like i know and we also have star wars in the rest of the episode but the other one reference i thought was when he says he looks at the camera and says you know he's basically saying not that there would be anything wrong with that which i think is a reference to that episode of seinfeld yes the outing Uh uh-huh from 1993 um where you know people are thinking uh, Jerry and George are gay or something and they're saying not that there's anything wrong with that um as they're yeah. denying it or something yeah I love that that's kind of that 
like a refrain in the episode that happens again and again. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I thought about that here too. Um, My last, I, oh yeah. I was just going to say about that when she says, he says, I don't get you, Pam. And she says, I know. And kind of looks down. It just, oh, I don't know. It just felt like a very powerful moment. And that captured not only him not getting her now in this particular moment, but like, this really is an issue for us. Like you don't get me in general. Yeah. Yeah. But also he's not wrong in a way in that, like, why not try to date Jim? You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. I don't, I, I felt like there was something, I felt that the writing here was like a little weak. I was like, this is not how Roy would act. I don't, I don't really believe that he would be like yeah you guys you should give it a chance because Mm -hmm. you are waiting for that you know i did appreciate that she's like no there were other reasons but not i'm not saying he's right i just thought it was interesting how she's so like no adamant that i'm not gonna but Uh um there was something else about that uh i don't remember but um a couple of little tiny details uh jim sees Angela and Dwight kiss and says, you know, I'll never tell anybody that's what I'm going to give. I thought it was interesting. Silence is his gift. But also by kind of Derrida's idea, I think, of the gift, this is actually like a perfect gift insofar as it is a gift that the recipient does not know that they have been given and they will never know that they've been given. So it does not provoke the the chain of reciprocity, you know, and the kind of um, object objectification or whatever of the gift. Um, yes. So I thought that was kind of interesting, like that he's giving a gift that will never be, no one will ever know. Of course we know. So maybe that undermines it. And potentially if Dwight ever watches this, but still thought it was, <laughs> thought it was That's good. far down the road. Wow. Oh my God. Okay. That's really cool. That is really cool. And then the last bit, I thought it was really funny that um, Ryan and Kelly are bickering and we hear that Ryan calls Kelly late at night because he's scared. Yes. Uh, and Kelly calls him uh, to say that she loves him. And Toby is like, if Michael did this to punish me, he's a genius. Yes. <laughs> well, that was funny. It was great. It was really great. Let me talk about one more Toby, well, moment where Toby is present. This isn't actually about Toby, but it's kind of wrapping up the... Dwight and Jim situation because this is when Michael and Toby are in the conference room and Jan is on the phone and Jan asks all right well are you going to take care of this and Michael says yeppers Jan what did I tell you about yeppers Michael I don't remember Jan I told you not to say it do you remember that Michael yeesh so these this is some of the office language that has so strongly entered my vocabulary that I regularly use yeppers and yesh and just think that they are great alternatives to yes oh my god I love this I love learning more about you (laughs) what do you think it is about yeppers that Jan just bans this (laughs) what did I tell you about yeppers (laughs) I'm starting to develop a theory of Jan and uh-huh. it is that um, this is a theory I have of some, some people, <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> but basically like that her, 
her criticism and her negativity is structural, that it's not object oriented. So no matter what Michael does, no matter what he says, mm. she she must criticize him. She must put him down. And yeah. so uh, on the one hand, I, I think it's, you know, that he, Yepers is not um, professional and it's childish and it's uh -huh. um, silly and she is embarrassed by him and finds his silliness gauche and immature or whatever. But on the other hand, I think what she's drawn to is the endless wealth of criticizing him and 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 putting him down and and the power dynamic. And so if he starts saying yes, like she'll just shift to something else, you know, like and you can never please somebody like that, <laughs> I think. Um even yeah. if it seems for a while like you can. Um so, but I don't know, that's my take on yeppers. When do you use it, by the way? Do you use it at work? Do you use it in class? <laughs> uh, two things. That is an amazing theory of Jan. That is right on. Um, I think that's really insightful. Uh, I use it mostly at home and in casual settings. <laughs> in casual settings. Because Jan is, I mean, Jan is right. It's not super professional. <laughs> um, but it, it reminds me of when he puts hearts over the eyes and she's like, what are these? And he says, I put a heart over the eye. It's just, it's not manly. I think that's the other thing. I think it goes with all of his, all of his shortcomings of performing his masculinity the way people want it. Perfect transition. Perfect transition. Uh, which is okay. also, yeah, go ahead. I, I, I got nothing. Where you, where do you want to go? Let's start no, us off. I was going to make a, because we said perfect transition and I was going to say, I was going to make a joke about my transition, but I, anyway, um, good times. I'm going to cut it. Fill in the plank. I've set it up to make it really weird when then you have to like deliver the joke after saying it's going to be a joke. What was it? Uh, no, I was, I, I, I was just going to make some joke about transitioning, uh, okay. Okay. like my transitioning, not anyway, this is incredibly awkward now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think I should cut this out. Anyway, um, okay. On the note of transitions of all varieties. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Where do you, I, you were so excited about this, and you, I feel like you are, you have a lot of thoughts. So I feel like you should kick it off with the, the either the negotiation itself or the suit. The clothes really captured your imagination. Okay. The clothes did capture my imagination, but let's start a little bit before when Michael is getting ready. So, one, I guess we could say there are multiple negotiations that are happening in this episode, but this big starting place negotiation is that Daryl wants a raise. So he has been doing more work since Roy is gone and he wants more money for it. And Michael knows that they're going to have this conversation and he's kind of worried about it. And so he's preparing for it. So um, Michael calls Jim into his office to start practicing his techniques. And Michael tells Jim, okay, I want you to be Daryl and ask me for a raise because I want to try out some of these negotiation tactics on you. And Jim asks, where did you get that? And Michael says, Wikipedia. I've noticed that there are certain kinds of camera moves that you love. And I realized here's one that I really love is when a character says something and typically it's Michael, and then it cuts right to an explanation of that thing. So uh, it's happened before when he says, 
TMI in the office. And then it goes TMI, too much information. I used to say don't go there, but that's lame. And in this case, it's Wikipedia. And he says, Wikipedia is the best thing ever. Anyone in the world can write anything they want about any subject. So you know you are getting the best possible information. I just, there's something about that method of splicing together the scenes and cutting away to an explanation in an interview that, I don't know, I just think is formally really interesting and consistently very funny. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Wikipedia, so, I mean, was Michael right about it all along that you're getting the best possible information? I mean, I I think it's become way more reliable over time. It would be, I just, it'd be interesting to trace that, like what practices did they put in place, you know, because I don't know if in the beginning, did they have like footnotes and citations, mm-hmm. uh, but so much stuff is hyperlinked and um, and then, yeah, you have lots of people editing and contributing. On the other hand, you know, there's been lots of criticisms, ongoing criticisms of the gaps. Um, you know, there's a significant gender differential on Wikipedia hmm. entities, um, that uh, many women have been trying to uh, push back on. You know, hmm. we've seen like governments, including <laughs> our own, attempt to edit the pages to, you know, um, enforce particular narratives that are congenial to their own power or something like that, you know, so I don't know, like reliable in what sense, but I certainly find it useful when trying to like look up Jamaican beaches or something like that, you know? Yeah, totally. Uh, (laughs) We've used it. We've actually used it as a resource a number of times. Undoubtedly. on this on this podcast and i've got to say i looked up negotiation and there is a wealth of information there Ooh, well i did write down the four things that we basically see in the episode although okay so one question i had is like we see michael practice then we see michael and daryl like negotiate together then we see michael and jam negotiate and so i thought it'd be fun to juxtapose those and ask like what tactics is Jam using what tactics are Daryl using? But for Michael, they include, even though he doesn't necessarily practice them, leaning back and quiet talking to establish a dominant physical position, walking out randomly, uh, changing the location of the meeting at the last minute, declining to speak first, and thereby keeping control. Um, And I can't remember if there was any others, but those were the ones that stood out to me. And I thought Daryl's main tactic was logic. You know, mm-hmm. he's like, let me demonstrate with textual evidence something yes. love about, you know, basically like why I deserve the raise. Like we're shipping twice as many orders. I'm picking up the slack for Roy and, um, you know, et cetera. So like he shows how the numbers actually add up. Um, and then comparing himself to Michael's salary while humiliating for Michael is also a really good tactic yeah. uh, to achieve his goal. Um, yeah. He kind is. of triangulates uh, Michael and Jam. Yeah. Yeah. Benefit. Although we never really find out, I guess we find out that he gets the raise, but like we don't really see that dynamic of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. It seems like there's sort of a, you said what, what Daryl really uses is logic. 
So it seems like there's maybe a distinction here between Michael's approach and Daryl's, which is kind of substance or style for Michael versus substance for um, Daryl, where Michael's like all about the tactics and not about the actual content of the argument. And Daryl, we could talk about his tactics, but he is, he's got the content on his side. So it's sort of, it seems like then Michael has to rely on the style where he doesn't have the real substantial claims. I think the point about what Daryl ends up doing, getting Michael on his side is brilliant and is a really, really effective strategy of argument. Like you want to get somebody with you instead of against you. And so in redirecting some of the attention ultimately away from his own raise and to Michael needing to go and talk to his girl and get paid, he ends up like winning, you know, by winning Michael over to his side for Michael's own sake. It's really good. It's really good. Yeah. And we see, you know, Jan is like, we need to have a third party. And it's interesting that Michael wants Daryl there as like his kind of backup. And he does bring him alongside with Toby. But yeah, um, for Jan, the reason the third party is there is not so much to triangulate as to um, avoid a lawsuit. <laughs> but I did think it was interesting. Her strategy is kind of, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I guess normal. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to describe it other than it's interesting that she's like on a break is basically like, look, you have to, he doesn't know the rules. Like he doesn't know that he needs to ask for more. And then you get the middle of it or whatever, which yeah. I mean, not for nothing. It points out how fucking stupid that is. I, I mean, I don't know. Um, yeah. And how companies, they make money. The way profit works is by underpaying workers. Like they're always, always, that's the only way, you know? And um, so it's irritating that like you even have to ask. Um, yeah. But uh, but then Michael's response is to be like, to start emotionally acting out and sort of bringing up sex and trying to uh, withhold sex. Like he's trying to, what do you, I don't know. Um, what it, blackmail, not blackmail. Um, what, what would it be? Uh, what, what would you call that? Um, I don't know, gain leverage by withholding things, you know? Yeah, yeah. Which I thought was an interesting strategy that is pointless, but, you know. Yeah. He, so when, um, when they arrive, we meet Hunter, Jan's new young assistant. Um, and let's see, <laughs> Michael asks, were you going to tell me that you hired James Vanderbeek? <laughs> James um, I have to call you the second I get a new assistant. Michael, be nice to get a memo. We are lovers. <laughs> and then Toby, who's just sitting there, says, hi, Jan. Um, he, Michael is kind of in the position of a, like a naggy wife almost. Yes, yes. Being like, why didn't you tell me about your hot new secretary? I love it that Michael recognizes his hotness, yep. feels, you know, feels threatened okay about that feels threatened by that um and he is so emotional so in the negotiation with jan michael says um why don't you take that pen and stab me in the heart this is me jan this is me 
And then Jan says, okay, Michael, please, why don't we just take a break? This is really going nowhere. And then Michael says, okay, no, 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 you are not, you do not try tactic number eight on me. I invented tactic number eight. I'm not going anywhere. I love the ownership that he takes here of tactic number eight, which is apparently from his Wikipedia list of tactics. Mm-hmm. But he he sees that, he sees that going on, but he is very emotional but she's just trying to do it in the professional way and trying to remove that component of it but then so once she sends i thought it was the the interaction was fascinating once she sends toby out and she asks michael what's wrong with you and he says oh it was a weird day i accidentally cross-dressed and then daryl made me feel bad for not making any money and then I had to write up you a stupid Toby. And then your assistant is all young and hot. And I, Jan, okay, Michael, I can offer you a 12% raise, but you have to ask for 15. Michael, well, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to make Jan. No, just, I just need you to ask for it so I can record that you asked for it. Okay. And then Michael, ah, so, all right, Levinson, here's the rub. I would like a 15% raise. And he's sort of, slips into improv mode it's like she's told him she's given him the here's the character here's that little bit of information you get at the beginning of an improv and now you pick it up and he's talking like i don't know he's an old-timey detective or something yeah yeah. and here's the rub yeah old-timey detective is is great you know and and it is like he's playing a part or he's in a movie my my other favorite moment that echoes that is when he tells daryl to write what he wants on a piece of paper and slide it across the desk you know and he's like why why i can just tell you or whatever i want 10 percent or something and and he's like no that's how they do it in the movies and he's totally right that is how they do it in the movies um and uh i just i don't know i just thought it was so funny that like it kind of brings up the cultural narratives and representations we have of negotiations or what negotiating looks like um So even that kind of him going personal and being like, this is me, Jan, is like, you know, you could imagine a hostage negotiation or something like, you know, or, or, or whatever, like trying to grapple with trying to reach the person on a personal level. Um, yeah, yeah. He's the um, when he says to Daryl, the thing about sliding it across the table he's like, that's the way we do it in films. Like he's got a, a little bit of a a pause where it's as if he's going to say that's the way that's the way they do it Mm. but then it adds that like okay his real source of knowledge isn't how they actually do it but it is in films but i think the little pause there is kind of noteworthy because we're just seeing how much his sense of this like you're saying is is informed by narratives of how narratives and images of what negotiation looks like and there is an aspect to negotiation where it really is performance. So Jan knows like what the, how they actually, Jan's trying to say, this is how they actually do it. Like not in films, but in like, this is how they do it. You have to ask for this so that I can give you that. So there is a performance to it, but Michael, as is frequently the case, when he takes on a character, he just goes too far. So rather than just being like, okay, I'm going to play this role. He's like, I'm going to take on an entire character and I'm going to start calling you Levinson and say, here's the rub. And in that moment, he is trying to sort of reclaim his 
power and arguably masculinity, right? Like mm -hmm. to be the one who says, here's the rub is the one who sets the terms of the negotiation or the, yeah. Yeah. What's so interesting. And this brings us now in, in some ways to the gender of it all, because Daryl is the one who says you need to like, who wears the show her, who wears the pants yeah. in the relationship. And I felt that the show missed an opportunity there to really underscore the 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 play on pants, given that he's wearing women's pants um, <laughs> in this moment. Um, but in any case, you know, that kind of idea of like who wears the pants, who's in charge, who's the boss in a relationship mapping onto the literal fact that she is his boss. Yeah. Um, and this whole episode is kind of conspiring to emasculate Michael. And it seems relevant that it's Daryl who is the person that he's negotiating with. So on the one hand, we have um, like a black man and we have all kinds of cultural narratives about black masculinity, mm -hmm. um, which gets invoked by Daryl in his sort of like, I'm giving him black man phrases. Is that what he says? Um, yeah. <laughs> but then also we already know that Michael feels sort of intimidated by Daryl's um, uh, masculinity, just by Daryl in general, um, not only his blackness and his, and his butchness, but his working class, um, mm -hmm. you know, like he is the boss of the warehouse and he is the one who does all of the, the, the labor, you know what I mean? All of it, whatever. So, so anyway, the, all of that is in play in terms of sort of positioning Michael in, in an unstable relationship to masculinity, and then that gets like literalized um, on his body with his clothes. It's so interesting that he calls it accidentally cross-dressed. Yes. Uh, just an interesting turn of phrase. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm curious what you what you made of his look, which Daryl describes as Hillary Clinton. And he takes pictures of him. He texts them to Roy. Seems relevant, <laughs> yes. but it's Roy. Um, yeah. What did you make of the mysterious suit? I think it's just hilarious when he calls him Hillary Clinton. But when Daryl notices it, it's also in a moment when Michael is trying to do a move. So he's trying to walk up and get, get, get up and kind of walk away. And he's facing outward toward the window as he's talking to Daryl. And... So that's when Daryl notices is looking at him from the back because he has a moment to just kind of like sit back and look and see him from this new angle. And Daryl says, are you wearing lady clothes? Those look like lady pants. Michael, no, this is a power suit. And then Daryl, that's a woman's suit. Michael, I do not buy women's clothes. I would not make that mistake again. And then Daryl says he's gonna he's got to call Roy. Um, Michael calling it a power suit. Great. Um, I do not buy women's clothes. I would not make that mistake again. So that's a sort of interesting thing that this is not the first time he has apparently made this mistake of buying women's clothes. But when they get into what the actual difference of the suit is, he says, he points out there, there are a couple things. First of all, Michael says it's European. Okay. It's a European cut. I think we can think about how Americans think about Europe, like what is European and what is like the masculine space around Europeanness. Um, but Pam says then Michael, the pants don't have pockets. Um, 
he tells them that Italians don't wear pockets. So again, we've got the, the European reference. It's called Mysterious. He says it's mysterious because the buttons are on the wrong side. <laughs> History, Phyllis points out shoulder pads. It's got that bright pink lining. So Michael thinks it's a power suit. Everyone else is mocking it, looking at it as a woman's suit. But what is the deal with this difference? Because actually, in so many ways, it's, it's just like there's a weird, the gendering of the suit, where there are these little details that are the things that make it supposed to be a woman's suit, mm-hmm. like side the buttons are on, like the lining, like the lack of pockets. And I don't, there's so little gap, actually. There's so little difference. Mm, say more. So it's not like a dress. Right. But the, the idea that these things, how small the things are that have meaning and that are coded as masculine or feminine, like it's just, I think we see in this example of suit, it's so arbitrary. Yes. Like the side the buttons are on. The thing with the pockets, I don't understand why so many women's pants don't have pockets. That just seems nonsensical. But th- there's also an interesting opposition between power suit and woman suit so that a woman suit is not a power suit and a power suit is by default a man right. suit right did you notice before if you can remember the first like when you were first watching it and if you didn't know what was happening did you notice before daryl did that it was a woman suit and i'm going to keep using daryl's term woman suit I did not notice before, um, but this time, you know, the time that watching it today, um, I, I was like, uh, I don't know that I ever would have. I don't know that I pay often close enough attention to like Michael's outfits and stuff or any of the characters outfits, but um, you can tell that it's mm-hmm. in before Dar- that he's wearing that suit before Daryl says something, yeah. which I thought was great, like a great little easter egg for people on a rewatch to be like there it is you know it's yeah it is subtly different but it is different enough and i thought the sheen of it was Hmm. one of the ways and then there seemed to be like a loose slightly looser in the um bust area or something you know a little more fabric space in there yeah yeah um so what about you the first time did you recognize it or no no i don't think so yeah. And I can't remember back that far. And it's one of those where I want to have back that first time. But I don't think that I did. But now, once you know, then you know the things to look for. And occasionally you can see into his sleeve and you can see that it's pink, which also reminds me of the Seinfeld episode where Jerry gets a jacket. He gets this beautiful suede jacket that he loves, but it's lined with I think they call it candy stripe. It's lined, it's like pink and white striped. And he's out with Elaine's dad and he tries to turn it inside out because it's snowing and it's going to ruin the um, the suede. But basically the dad is like, there's no way you're going to go out in that. You know, you look too gay or something like that. And so he has to just wear it normally and ruin it. But it's interesting how much the lining of a suit, just all those little things, how weighted they are and how much they mean yeah i think i mean you're pointing out something that i find just fascinating and as somebody who's been um wearing more women's clothes out 
in public, I've been thinking a lot about this tension. Like on the one hand, you know, my queer brain is like, none, all of this is just a fiction. It's a social performance. Like, why do we put so much emphasis on these differences? And then my trans brain is like, but I want to, you know, I find, um, I feel more comfortable, you know, in, in these more femme clothes or whatever. Mm-hmm. And how much of that is like how I'm being perceived versus how much of that is how I'm perceiving myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel this weird tension around uh, maybe all things gender, but definitely clothes where it's like, they really matter. And on the other hand, I'm also like, why do they have to matter so much? So I really resonate yeah. with that yeah. point. Because mm-hmm. what's interesting here is that like, if it was so obvious, then Michael would have known from the get-go, right? Yeah. But also, so would everybody else. Everybody else. When he walked in the office, they all would have noticed, but they didn't notice until yeah. Daryl pointed it out. And which means that it is like a subtle and arguably meaningless set of differences, right? Yeah. Why is it then that we need to have this kind of endless differentiation? You know, I mean, we could get into that, but um, but yeah, I just love your point that like it no longer becomes a power suit because it's a woman's suit. Why couldn't a woman wear a power suit? Of course, yeah. him comparing him to Hillary Clinton is fascinating because that was she was endlessly sort of mocked for like her suits or her <laughs> um I don't know what they called them. Did they call them pants suits? Pants suit, yeah. Which was something I never understood because I was like, what what is the difference between that and a suit? Like why why do we add the word pant? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's, there's a woman version that is with a skirt. That's with a matching uh, skirt. But you don't just call that a suit. Anyways, right. The modifier pant is strange. Michael has some really good insight on this. He, in interview says there were these huge bins of clothes and everybody was rifling through them like crazy. And I grabbed one and it fit. So I don't think that it is totally just a woman's suit. At the very least, it's bisexual. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. It's so funny. It's also it's a great right. example of like, we don't, at least in that moment, I certainly didn't have any access to non-binary, gender fluid, gender queer, you know, um, let alone trans as discourses. So there's no, like, so he resorts to bisexual. Yeah, yeah. Which isn't inherently about gender performance, but, you know, I mean, I spent a good deal of time, like, mistaking my uh, transness for my queerness or being like, oh, is my gender, you know, whatever, um, is that just because I'm bisexual or when I thought I was gay or whatever? Anyway, so I just love that he made that um, comparison. But if I can go back to your point, well, actually, no, let's stay with this for a minute. Where is he shopping? Everybody's jumping in these bins. What's this about? Well, it could be, I don't know, is it like Nordstrom Rack or something like that? I mean, they're not exactly bins, but, you know, someplace, it's not at a really, at a top high-end suit place. It's not where David Wallace is getting his suits. Fair. But I think it's where you can get a good deal. And he's just taking it for for what it is. It's a suit that fits. (laughs) Yeah, which is interesting um he says well first yeah i was like oh is it a sale and that's why everybody's rifling through the bins or is it like a a vintage or a like a reuse a a salvation army situation you know i i I couldn't picture it but he says i i don't want to or i wouldn't make this mistake again or something like that yeah Um, 
I would not make that mistake again. It was such a tantalizing line. Yeah. Like, when did he make it before? Yeah. And yeah. then that begs the question, is it a mistake? Mm-hmm. Why don't, you, why don't you elaborate? Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I, like, I don't know. I don't want to push too hard on this. But um, because I guess the reason I, I was sort of hoping I would enjoy this aspect of the episode more. Hmm. And I felt at times that I was like, it's not so fun in this episode to read Michael as queer or trans because to do so would sort of play into Daryl and Jan's and everybody's kind of ideas about what men, you know, what men are supposed to be. And yeah. so to read him as like not, you know, as queer or as trans or whatever is gender nonconforming kind of feels like it only plays into their reading. Like, why can't he be who he is? Anyway, but yeah. at the same time, um, you know, it's just been fascinating. Here's this guy who like overperforms or attempts to, he, he idolizes um, the dude, the, who's the creepy guy? Packer, right? Yeah. Yeah. And um, the grossest form of masculinity. And yet he's got this kind of sweet interiority. Um, and he, you know, isn't, doesn't quite know how to fit into masculine norms. He tries, but he never quite gets it. Mm -hmm. and, um, wearing little suits that his mom put him in. Yeah. Made, yeah. You know, and so clothing for him is this, I don't know. Like, I don't know how comfortable he is in any kind of clothes or whatever. So the fact that he felt comfortable that it fit seems really important. Um, yeah. And uh, so whether he's conscious of it or not, there's just something interesting there to me about feeling feeling himself he feels powerful he feels empowered yeah um and you know if one gets away from whatever daryl's like because implicit in daryl's kind of idea would be all of the homophobia or transphobia or just shame around not being a real man or something like that if you mm -hmm. just put that aside um and say well there's nothing shameful about wearing a woman's suit and it making you feel good I don't know. It would be interesting. Like, would Michael want to continue to do that? You know, um, I don't know. That's anyway. I mean, the the fact that it's called mysterious is also <laughs> tantalizing to me. Obviously, um, the joke about it being miss is there. But also, I kept thinking about the mysteriousness of of the situation that he finds himself in, where he's like multiple times mistaking women's clothes for clothes that he wants to wear. Mm -hmm. um, and sort of not recognizing that I don't know um yeah. he says yeah. also oh yeah he says Karen is like do you uh, you want to come raid my closet and he's like oh none of that would fit I'm twice your size or something yeah. I don't want to do that because I'm twice your size anyway yeah <laughs> a really revealing line I thought where he's thought about it he has thought about his size in relationship to hers which is I think a kind of trans thing a little bit this kind of gender envy or comparing yourself like he's comparing himself to another woman he's not comparing himself to another man um physically and anyway i don't know i just thought that was fascinating because he's he's not a huge guy he's not twice her size he is not no he's totally not um one of the words that stood out to me that you were using in a couple of ways so i wanted to pull out that doubleness 
was about him fitting into masculine norms and the idea that the suit fit. So there's something here with that idea of I tried it on and it fit and there's the physical fit and there's the cultural fit of the right kind of masculine suit and fitting into those expectations of masculinity. And I'm just struck again here as I have been in past episodes by the subtlety of it, like the subtlety that it takes to fit because it's a thing that looks like a power suit, but you have to notice. And I think the only way to notice it is to have heard or learned at some point that women's suits button on the wrong side. Wow. Look at that. I just said the wrong side. Oh my God. <laughs> Revise and regret. Uh, button on the other side and that they don't have pockets. Like you have to, you don't just naturally read those things. You have to know to read them. Um, and so it's different. It's different than a, a dress. Like there's just the, just the degrees of difference really take a kind of I don't know, skill of reading this kind of thing. And I guess one of the, one of the other moments that was related that stood out to me was when he goes into, he goes to corporate, he goes to New York and it hasn't, he hasn't been so humiliated in terms of the effect on him. He hasn't been so humiliated by this that he had to stop home or that he stopped at men's warehouse or something where he at one time bought a fur coat, you know, to trade it out. He goes to New York, he goes to corporate wearing a woman's suit. And then as they're in the waiting room, he sits next to a woman who's wearing what looks like the same suit. And he looks over and he notices that she has hers buttoned up and his wasn't buttoned up. And I feel like there are all these rules too about when, you know, men unbutton their jackets when they sit down and they button them when they stand back up. And actually the Wikipedia entry about negotiation includes certain rules about whether your jacket is buttoned or not. And the mm. signal that that sends when you button unbutton, but he looks over and hers is buttoned up higher. And so then what he, he's looking at it, he notices and seems to kind of admire it. And then when he goes into the negotiation with Jan, he's got his fully buttoned up like hers was. Wow, I didn't catch that. Oh, my God. So in some ways, rather than moving away from it, in that he moves toward it. Holy shit. <laughs> and I think it's interesting then, like he maybe the episode is kind of reclaiming the idea that like it is a power suit. You know, women's suits can be powerful. Yeah, yeah. Um, and isn't Jan wearing? one she's wearing a suit and she looks it looks really good the jacket is a different style than his it kind of comes down lower where it where the first button is his top button is high mm -hmm. and hers is lower but she looks great in it karen is also wearing a suit and looking really good in it well i was gonna say i love this point that you have about i'm gonna come back to yeah oh, there's so much holy crap um first <laughs> uh i do think that that kind of confirms if you wanted to sort of read a a trans desire into Michael there. I think that that's legit, you know, like there is an example of him, like, you're right. Like, and in fact, I'm going to get personal or whatever, but like, I've had these, you know, as I was saying earlier in relationship to Teal's um, phrasing about coming out to oneself, like I've had all of this denial and shame and repression and whatever 
And, you know, when I was talking to Jen about, you know, my transness or whatever, and she's like, don't you remember, like, when we got together, you had, like, a drawer full of skirts, you know, and I was like, yeah, I just thought I was a person who likes wearing skirts, like, you know, and I just thought that, like, and it's not to say that one couldn't, you know, and I remember being like, why can't I just be a boy who wears nail polish and wears skirts? And I was like, and, and I remember at one point, Jen was like, well, because you might not be a boy. And I was like, right, that's why it doesn't feel like enough. Um, but I would have these moments of like fear, like, what if I'm not really trans or something like that? And people would say, you know, if you, you know, if if a cis person were to wear the clothes of another gender, you know, and like, or or, you know, whatever, or to do some of these things, they would very likely feel dysphoric. They would feel like this doesn't feel right. I don't like this. Like, I don't want to wear you know, a woman's dress. I don't want to wear, you know, men's underwear or something like that, you know? And so I think the fact that your point that Michael doesn't go home and change, that he doesn't, now that he knows, he does not actually feel dysphoria. He feels maybe more like euphoria, or at least to the extent that he wants to mimic um, how this other woman has presented herself, which I think is also interesting. Like the more that I've been trying to dress femme and stuff like, I'm now looking around at other women's clothing or how they style themselves or how they do their makeup. And I initially felt all this kind of shame about that. Mm -hmm. Like it was creepy or something. And then I was like, oh, right. Like that's how we all learn gender. It's just that like I have 39 years to catch up on, right? Like, you know, some of my friends who are women uh, have been studying <laughs> femininity for a long time. And so it starts mm -hmm. to feel natural. Mm -hmm. But when you're first learning it. So as you're saying, like there's a subtle set of reading skills mm -hmm. that go into. And so I, I don't know if I was texting you or texting Corey, but it was one of you where I'm like, um, when is, when can I, something like, I was basically like wondering about the rules of wearing dresses to work and like to teach and like what's appropriate in terms of showing shoulders and not, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, I don't know any, or, or, and I was asking somebody else about like, when do you tuck a shirt for a skirt and when don't you and Jen was saying like well, you can do whatever you want you know and I was like no 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 like yes I understand that we can all do whatever we want or whatever I need to know like <laughs> what are the rules what are the generally regarded rules so that when I'm breaking them I know that I'm breaking them for a reason you know it's like but I don't even have the background knowledge it feels really sometimes uh, uh, ridiculous um anyway so I just love this point that you're making about how how subtle it can be. But then once you know the codes, you start to see them, but they are highly gendered. Um, yeah, yeah. This, I'm struck by that, your point about the desire to know when I'm breaking the rules. And Michael, and that is the thing that Michael doesn't know, like he doesn't anticipate that he's broken the rules and so he's caught off guard by it but he has he sometimes has these sort of nice affinities with women I think that don't necessarily say anything anything that I could say conclusively about his, his identity or like the core of who he is or anything like that but um yeah just in the way in the way that he looks over at this woman and seems to kind of like the way that her suit looks in the way that he um 
puts hearts over his eyes, like the, the ways that he does break the rules and expectations of masculinity. I just think there's something lovely about it. And it's something that makes Michael so compelling to me as a character. You're making me think that when he says his signature signature catchphrase, that's what she said. That mm-hmm. like he's identifying with the she in huh. that phrase. That <laughs> that he is he is not the he <laughs> uh, 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 or whatever. That's you know. Um, but also, yeah, I think you're right. I do think you're right, and it's been interesting to watch his relationship with Jam because we see some of that femininity come out. You know, I mean, this is again like the the trickiness, right? Of like queerness and transness and masculinity and feminine all of this is like why can't he just be a a a straight cis guy who loves uh who wants the domestic life and the and the fence or whatever he says you know i want the kids Mm -hmm. and the dog and the yard and all of that um but at the very least it does make him it puts him outside of the norms and the expectations and I think that you persuaded me that the show isn't exactly it's not using it all it's mostly not trying to like shame him about that but sort of use it use the situation to other ends to expose some of these cultural norms and stuff right like yeah I was gonna oh go ahead yeah I just I really really like that idea about how it exposes the cultural norms and what you said about it not using it to shame him because we've sometimes talked about and kind of discussed and debated like who is the target of the joke and who's being made fun of. And this is, I think in the episode, Michael is hilarious. It is a hilarious quote mistake. Um, And at the same time, it doesn't feel like it's really my, it's like you're laughing at him but also not in I don't know it feels like it's not mean-spirited or it it feels like there's more to it than being like what a loser you are a woman suit right right. do you know what I mean yeah yeah absolutely I'm, I'm having trouble articulating that but yeah it just it feels like there's a lot more going on than it kind of saying yeah Hillary Clinton women's suits men who wear them by accident yeah I agree and I think as much as it's about you know him learning to negotiate is about how to perform masculinity in a certain way right and yeah Yeah. and in that way it is about teaching the audience like these are the rules look how stupid they are like these are fucking rules in books that they're telling bosses to use to Mm -hmm. you know humiliate their workers or whatever um and so by having a character who also doesn't know the rules you we get to explore like how arbitrary in some cases they are so i think that that follows through not only with clothes but then when jan is like you have to ask for 15 to get 12 it's like why not just tell him here's here's the max i can give him you know like we know why because it's like they want to underpay as much as possible blah 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 like whatever but But I do think it pulls out the the norms. Uh, when Pam says, like, you know, it's been a tough week and this, you know, this helps or something. I felt yeah. like that kind of spoke to it. It was like there's a kind of like, you know, even Phyllis kind of looking at the shoulder pads and looking at the thing like 
yes, they're making fun of him, but it's also his. He he could be like, yeah, so what? Like, mm-hmm. I look fucking good. And I don't <laughs> think that they would disagree. I uh-huh. think part of it is his own reaction that they are enjoying. And so I yeah. really enjoy the moment when he sticks out his butt. Yes. And, um, and Pam is, you know, cracking up or whatever. Um, but That's that Right, that Italians don't wear pockets. Yeah. So I thought it was really interesting to go back to your point about the European. European is representing a different set of gender norms and specifically also a different kind of maybe relationship to the body. And yeah. then specifically choosing Italians and like our kind of cultural stereotypes about Italians, you know, and eroticism and, and you know, the kind of otherness the sexy eroticism of Italians, I don't know, I feel like is a stereotype or something like that. Um, And anyway, so I just thought it was interesting that he invokes that. But something that I have thought about, though, is kind of like Americans' relationship to gender is really fucking weird. And I I mean, I'm sure it is also in Europe. I don't fully know how, you know, their colonialist (laughs) gender binary got implemented or whatever. But in our Puritan you know, uh, highly gender segregated, uh, you know, racialized society or whatever, like gender ambiguity, gender fluidity, gender, you know, crossing has been illegal. It is highly threatening of all kinds, all other kinds of social spheres, whether it's labor or domestic relations or kinship or whatever. Um, And so I thought it was kind of interesting to imagine a different you know, set of countries or something like that, a different national space, because yeah, like, I don't know, like, when I went to Germany, for example, um, and, you know, you're walking down, like, the main street, and the, you know, the Rhine runs through Constance is where I was. And everybody, old, young, whatever, stripping nude, hanging out, jumping in the river, laying by the side, you know, and there was just this total normality of nudity you know and a relationship to the body that i was like oh whoa you know like mm-hmm. and i was like that is so like in america we are in the united states we're so repressed not only about nudity but also any kind of gender you know so i sometimes wonder like what would my relationship to gender be in a country that was like or in a historical context that was more culturally uh accepting of those things um yeah you know, I have no idea. It's a, but it's just a thought experiment. Um, yeah, so. yeah. I like to think about then Europe as part of the American imaginary of gender. Yeah, it's a common kind of reference. And going back actually again to Seinfeld, there's a an episode where I think Jerry gets a purse, which is just a very useful thing to be able to carry stuff around. But he calls it a European carry all. <laughs> so I think we commonly have this kind of reference where it's like, well, you know, this this thing that in America we consider kind of feminine, like Europe gives men a little more room right, to like carry a purse or to wear a European cut suit. It's just there's something really interesting about going to that and about that being actually part of this American thinking about gender that it's like it's a little different there. And we can kind of like tap into that when we want it. Um while still maintaining a kind of American sense of the division and what is 
acceptable for men. Yeah. Oh my God. That is so, that is so smart. That is so, so smart and true. And, uh, but it's also underscoring for me too, like, uh, you know, part of the anxiety about all of this is sexism, right? It is, it's not just about heteronormativity or policing the gender binary. It is also like, why would anybody want to be feminine? Like femininity mm -hmm. is bad in some way, like specifically femininity in a man is yeah. something yeah. gross or disgusting or whatever, um, or on a body that is assigned male or a body that looks masculine or whatever, you know, but, yeah. um, you know, the idea of giving up masculinity for femininity is kind of seen as like a, you know, unthinkable idea. Why would you do that? Why would anybody, you know, and, and I do think that some of that is misogyny, right? And, um, and uh, anyway, I don't know, masculinity is such a fucking, or I, maybe it's the gender binary, but I, I think masculine, a certain form of toxic masculinity is such a prison, you know, like, and this episode represents it. It's like, Men are supposed to be, they're supposed to get paid and uh -huh. earn all the money to take care of, you know, whatever other, other people they're supposed to be ready to fight and put their bodies on the line at any time. They're not yeah. supposed to have feelings, you know, and, and our culture polices that to such a degree. And then it's like, oh, people marry these cis straight men. And it's like, gee, why can't they like process their feelings why, why don't they ever, why are they angry all the time? It's like, gee, I don't know. Like our culture has been like, if you have feelings, you're a pussy. You know, if you yeah. express any softness or sweetness, <laughs> you're a loser, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and I've had students in class, women in class be like, oh yeah, if my boyfriend cried, I'd break up with him, you know? And I'm like, that's a, that's a dangerous, that's a dangerous position of anyway. So yeah. I don't know. Just think about yes, how not an easy position to be in. <laughs> yeah, yes. Like Michael, a man who cries. Or back to your point about the role of sexism in this. It's when Daryl discovers that he's wearing a woman's suit that the whole thing turns. Like that, the power locks on Daryl and away from Michael yeah. because that, like, it immediately undercuts his power. The one one other thing just about that was interesting was the way that once Daryl gets Michael to call Jan to say that he wants to negotiate his own salary in that scene, when Michael's on the phone in his office, Daryl is standing, Michael's sitting and Daryl's standing yeah. up him and he's got his, his feet are in kind of a wide stance and he's got his arms across his chest. And it's just this very authoritative position um, and Michael had talked some about in negotiation, the ways that your body language signals power, like whether it's movement or it's leaning back in your chair or whatever it is. And Daryl was clearly taking this stance of power and of masculinity and kind of looking over Michael in his woman's suit and instructing him on in what to do. Hmm. That is such a great point. That is such a great example. There's one other thing here with this is back to Michael and Jan um, that I wanted to make sure we recognize. And this is your favorite type of camera move. Yes. It, it is at the end. Michael has succeeded in negotiating a higher salary and it's doing kind of an interview and he's standing at the corporate office and he says, negotiation is an art. 
back and forth, give and take. And today, both Daryl and I took something, higher salaries, win, win, win. But you know, life is about more than just salaries. It's about perks, like having sex with Jan, and then Jan says, Michael. And at that point, the camera has been just on Michael, but it like kind of expands outward. And then we suddenly see that Jan is there standing next to him as he's saying this. So I really just wanted to recognize this moment for you. Oh, so funny. I love that you know my my thing. I actually thought of you in the episode. I was like, ooh, Megan's favorite kind of joke is here when he says, um, uh, you know, it was just, or nobody's disgruntled. In fact, everybody's gruntled. Yeah. Um, and I was like, that's Megan's favorite kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I did love the cut to Janet. Also, I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, yeah, Michael is a walking lawsuit, um, as Toby points out. On the other hand, his exuberance and like seeing of Jan as a perk is, I don't know, <laughs> sweet to me. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I was just going to say, I was to go back to the question of kind of like Michael you know, wearing the suit, fearing, feeling powerful or whatever. I just, I don't know. I would love to keep this conversation open because it's something I've been thinking a lot about, like what, what are clothes <laughs> and like why, <laughs> because on the one hand, I've, I've been saying to people sometimes when I'm feeling a little down about how I'm like, why does, you know, why does this have to be such a big deal? Meaning my transness or whatever. I'm like, can I just you know wear a dress or whatever? And, um, you know, and it's like, I think part of that is just wanting to be invisible or not wanting it to be a big deal or something. But I do genuinely wonder that, like, why, why does it have to be such a big deal? But then also, like, I had this experience where I went shopping, you know, in the last month or whatever, and um, was shopping with Jen and like put on a dress. And I looked in the mirror and I like cried. And I hmm. felt more in my body and like more like in my, it felt so surreal because I never liked looking at myself in the mirror. I never saw myself in the mirror and I suddenly like had a glimmer of it or whatever. And on the one hand, I was overwhelmed with this feeling of like, oh my God, like I, I feel like aligned or something. Hmm. And then I also felt terror. <laughs> I felt this like horror, like it was very uncanny with this kind of like, because it confirmed that it was real in some ways that like this desire or this part of me like is very, very real, but has been in some ways like unconscious or I haven't allowed mm. myself to think about it. So I just kept thinking about that with Michael and his kind of like, it was a mistake. I accidentally cross-dressed, like yeah. I don't make it Freudian or whatever. And I, and again, I'm not trying to push that reading, but just it as like, it really hits home for me in that sense of mm. kind of like, here's a person who on the one hand is feeling himself and then on the other hand, another part of himself has to kind of deny that or have it, explain it, explain it away or something or put it in its place or something. And, and anyway, um, and and it's weird anyway. Yeah. Two things. One, did you buy that dress? Yeah, I did. Okay, good. Send me pictures, please. Uh, number two, you said the, th the question about like, why is it such a big deal? And one thing that was funny to me is when Michael at one point in one of his interviews is saying negotiations are all about controlling things about being in the driver's seat and make one tiny mistake. You're dead. I made one tiny mistake. I wore women's clothes. Yeah. <laughs> it's 
thought the framing that is a tiny mistake when everyone else thinks it's a thinks it's a very big deal. Yeah. But also, at the same time, it kind of was a tiny mistake because no right. one noticed it until Daryl pointed it out. But then it becomes a big deal. So there is an interesting and complicated thing between the bigness or the smallness of it. Oh, that reminds me. Oh, also, that's what she said. Um, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing, <laughs> the other thing I was going to say that's been interesting about wearing more femme clothes is like a different relationship to my body, but also like you know, Michael showing off his ass. You know, is like <laughs> some feminine clothes are more like I don't know. I don't want to say like revealing. That's not what I mean. I mean more like they draw attention to parts of the body that masculine clothes don't right and like yes. it's just an it's there, there's something really interesting to me about that moment of i don't know where they're pointing out the things on the suit that yes change our perception of michael's body and uh oh. i don't know and i kept thinking like how does he feel about that you know like i don't know anyway yeah to be continued i guess to be continued well is it uh What's the word I'm looking for? Dundee time. Oh, before we go there, can I just, since we're in the midst of my feels about gender, can I tell you the one thing this podcast has been bringing up for me? Yes. Is, uh, well, so like, you know, I my voice is deep. <laughs> and uh, whenever we record, I'm like, it's been bringing up these like anxieties for me about like, how do, how do people hear this voice? It hmm. reads as masculine and... And anyway, I, it's just a, a fascinating thing to read into, like how trans women like take like voice lessons or do like or have vocal surgery, all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> lots of things have been very exciting to me about transition. But the one thing that hasn't is like any of that. I'm like way too lazy to practice, mm -hmm. you know, and I've tried like modulating my voice and stuff like that. And anyway, so it's been funny because nobody else seems to care. But he's like, yeah, I'll use she her pronouns like you are who you are, like whatever. But it's my, like, I keep hearing my voice and having all this self-consciousness about it or whatever as not feminine. And on the one hand being like, who gives a shit? You know, I'll be like, anyway. Uh, yeah. So I just wanted to say it out loud. Cause like every time we sit down to record, I'm like, should I try to speak in a higher pitched voice? Like what, anyway, hmm. just weird thing I thought I would share with you and our listeners. Yeah. Well, I've listened to this podcast a lot, and I love your voice. Oh. <laughs> and one thing, oh gosh, I wish I could think of the particular lines when you do this, but you have a way that's just very you, but of going into a higher register, but that you've always done. Yeah. Like when you ask, for example, <laughs> things like that, that's just this this switch. So that's one of your um, higher pitch moves that I just really adore. Um, but I think you sound fabulous. You're very sweet. Um, all right, let's do it. Let's head over to Chili's. Um, I'm getting the Presidente Margarita. Okay. Sounds good. I think that my choices are obvious. Look, <laughs> uh, the, the, um, superhero award goes to Dwight K. Schrute all right. for his bravery and, uh, quick thinking. Mm -hmm. And then my second Dundee um, for, uh, we'll call it the hidden transcript 
Um, is that, that was what it's a called? hidden transcript. A hidden like. transcript award uh, goes to Jan Levinson, um, who like you know tells Michael what he needs to do to get that raise, and um, she didn't have to do that. And in some ways, it might be against her own interests. Although arguably, maybe it is in her own. Whatever. I just appreciated that she was like, "Look, this is the secret rule. Just do it." Um, yeah. So good for her. Mm, I thought you were going to do something with the play also of the trans and transcript. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, for a minute there, I thought it was going to Michael. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I think Jan is deserving of an award here for sure. All right. I am going to give away three awards today. And interestingly enough, there is zero overlap. <gasps> awards. I'm sorry. I am not giving one to Dwight. This is shocking <laughs> i am shocked <laughs> let me tell you what i am going to give out first the art of negotiation award goes to daryl philbin he wow. really showed some great negotiation moves i think we could argue he was the big winner of this one other note about him is when when he tells Michael, oh gosh, I might have a couple of more more quotes that I've got to that I've got to get up here. So he says, so Daryl says to Michael, okay, this is when they're at corporate. Okay, bring it home now, and don't forget the new black man phrase I taught you. And Michael says, "Pippity poppity, give me the sorry." <laughs> <laughs> Daryl says, "Yes, sir. Remember that. I'll be right outside if you need me," which is really kind of sweet. Um, and then it goes to a Daryl interview where he says, yeah, I taught Mike some new phrases. I want him to get the raise. I just can't help myself. The one thing about this that was really upsetting to me, and I didn't notice this until seeing the script, it's pippity-poppity and not bippity-poppity. I thought it was bippity-boppity, said bippity-boppity, texted bippity-boppity. <laughs> yes, for way too long. And I'm just, I liked bippity-boppity better. So I was kind of unhappy about uh, that realization, but Daryl was just really delightful in this episode and a great negotiator. Uh, second, th this one is going to really surprise you. No, wait, actually, I'm going to save the surprise for last. Second, then, the Bold Choices in Fashion Award goes to Michael Scott for obvious reasons. And finally, the Perceptive Person Award goes to toby flenderson whoa i think this is my first toby award of all time this is for a couple toby just had a couple of great moments one of them you already read and that's when he says i don't think michael intended to punish me by putting ryan back here with kelly but if he did intend that wow genius very perceptive moment the other one was when he's in there on the in the negotiation with jan and michael and he starts taking notes and he says it goes then to to an interview he says this may be the first time that a male subordinate has attempted to get a modest scheduled raise by threatening to withhold sex from a female superior it will be a groundbreaking case when it inevitably goes to trial <laughs> and he said that he was taking notes for the deposition i think he just has such an articulate description of what is going on here and he's interested in it. We will later learn that Toby loves or is very excited about the legal system and when he can get involved in it. Uh, but I just, just thought he had some very perceptive interviews in this, 
in this episode. I am I'm glad that you read that part into the record because I it made me laugh so much. Um the <laughs> it'll be a groundbreaking case. Yeah. <laughs> so, I am I am shocked. But I, I think it's good that we've we've discovered two things. Number one, that you are an, you are anti-Dwight. You'll never, you know, I it's just shocking the extent to which your hate for Dwight is I hate Dwight. I hate Creed. I don't hate Dwight. I considered Dwight for an award, but some other people just over the course of the episode really surpassed him. And then I guess you are an advocate for transphobia and and toxic masculinity because you supported Daryl, you know, who just endlessly humiliated michael's gender nonconformity. i just i don't know i i just didn't see that coming from you but you know you don't you never know you know what people what hate people have in their heart you know wow brutal (laughs) (laughs) i think i'm gonna have to come up with a stronger argument for defending daryl next time (laughs) i'm gonna revise a regret that i'm getting me into here (laughs) that i made this joke No. Could one argue though that Daryl does it in great fun and some degree of kindness? <laughs> uh, yeah. The whole thing, I don't know. It has a weird <laughs> tone because he is definitely <laughs> laughing at him, thinks it's hilarious, is taking pictures and sending them around. You're right, it's fair. On one level, it seems pretty terrible. At the same time, I don't know. I think there's more going on here. No, for sure. I was just teasing you. <laughs> um, Your crusade oh, to cancel me is strong. I am trying so hard. Uh, but, you know, um, you are uncancelable. Uh, <laughs> um, all right. So next episode is episode or it's season three, episode 20. And I will get that right next time. Uh, and it is safety training. So I don't know what that's going to be about, but I look forward to discovering it. We will find out. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you. Bye.